Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jackie Markham disappeared on Thursday, December 14th, 2000. When a person disappears without a trace, often the most critical information is hidden in their actions and words from the days before they vanished. Jackie Markham's last known whereabouts may hold the clues to what happened to her. A feisty trucking company manager goes missing. She never came back home. She never answered her phone. She wouldn't have never just went off without calling somebody. Suspicion falls on both colleagues and friends. I could see it in her eyes. She was scared of him. Her children cannot fathom the disappearance of this devoted mother and grandmother. Imagine opening a house that's been closed up for four months and see a half-decorated Christmas tree with cobwebs. Hard to explain. Then a serial killer turns up in Jacksonville. He stalled females followed them, then he would attack. And the case takes a darker turn. She had been stabbed numerous times. Could this be a clue to Jackie's fate? It's December 2000 in Jacksonville, Florida, and 51-year-old Jackie Markham is racing to finish work early this is unusual, as she's totally committed to her job managing a trucking firm. She had a really good work ethic, worked really, really hard, almost too much, never really took vacations. Jackie's not just a workaholic. She's also very good at what she does. She was able to multitask. There's a lot that happens in the trucking business all at the same time. The phones are ringing, faxes are coming in, drivers need things, and she was able to take each one of those things and be the calm in the storm. But on this day, December 14th, 
Jackie leaves work early to do last-minute errands. She stops at a Kmart and at a drugstore to pick up prescriptions. It's part of her preparation for a much-anticipated holiday trip. We were all going to get together the week before Christmas, and we were going to celebrate her grandchildren's birthdays. If anything is more important to Jackie than her commitment to work, it's her family. Her work was her passion, but um, her children and her grandchildren meant the world to her. We were the light of her life, I believe, especially her grandchildren. Jackie's three children, Melissa, Scott, and Lisa, are grown and live in central Florida three hours away. More than anything, Jackie's looking forward to seeing her grandchildren. I've not seen a single picture of her that she wasn't kissing on her grandchildren or actually holding her children. Jackie is a young grandmother, having married at 15. She had three children by the time she was 20. I believe I was 12 when she divorced my, my dad, and um, several years later she remarried and married Larry Markham. It was through Larry Markham, owner of a trucking firm, that Jackie learned the business. She worked up here to seven, eight, nine o'clock at night sometime, and what it took to get the job done. And I was the same way. It was a true family enterprise. But working together and living together was a little too intense for Jackie and Larry. Theirs was a complex relationship. We got a divorce and lived together for about another eight, nine years, got married again, and we stayed married that time for about seven, eight years. In 1999, Jackie and Larry divorced again with regret. The day that she left, she stopped at the door where I was sitting, and she said, let's call all this off and just run off together again. And I said, well, I think it's gone a little far this time, so we never did do it, and we went ahead and filed for the divorce. By 2000, Jackie was rebuilding her life as a single woman. To begin, she bought a house of her own in Callahan, a small town north of Jacksonville. She was really excited about the house. She wanted to have a house where each of her three children would have their own bedroom. Jackie also started to kick up her heels, dating several men. I think she was enjoying dating around after she had gotten divorced. I don't think she was looking to, to get remarried. Of Jackie's various boyfriends, the one who seemed to be around the most was Archie Carroll. We met her boyfriend when we went up for a um, get-together at Thanksgiving that year. He was a truck driver, and she had met him through work. Archie appeared to be smitten with Jackie. She's a smart person. She's fun to be around. And she didn't need you to do things for her, you know. She was self-sufficient, and it was... it's was refreshing, to say the least, to meet someone with that kind of drive and character, and it was nice. She was a heck of a girl. Archie and Jackie started dating early in 2000, and it wasn't long before he had a key to her house. It was seldom you needed one. Most of the time, the place was unlocked. And you know, she'd leave the garage door open, because she had that little dog, Freckles, I guess, so he could come and go. And I've went there many times and just opened the door. By December of 2000, though, the relationship had cooled. I came to realize that she was not in no way, shape, or form emotionally wanting or needing a relationship. She needed a good friendship, and that I gave her. 
But Jackie and Archie were still spending a lot of time together. They put up a Christmas tree at Jackie's on Tuesday, December 12th, two days before she left work early to prepare for her family gathering. We set it up and we messed with that, I don't know, till 10-ish that night and I left. And she called me the next evening and asked me, are you coming over? They don't get together the next day, but instead make a date for Thursday night. December 14th. Just as Archie is heading out, he says he gets a bizarre phone call from Jackie. She was talking very different. Like she was under some duress or maybe a little fear or something. She said, well, uh, you remember a friend of mine I mentioned works over in town, CSX Railroad, Richard? I said, I guess I heard you mention him before. She said, well, he's here drinking and he's drunk, so don't come over. Archie says both the conversation and the tone of Jackie's voice are disturbing. And then the phone went dead. And right then, I started getting this weird feeling. She, she wasn't talking right. Something just don't feel good here. I came inside for just a minute, and I got in my car, and I went over there. And when I got there, her car's there, and no Jackie. No purse. In central Florida, Jackie's daughter Melissa and her husband Todd are expecting her mother to arrive the next day and have no idea that anything is wrong. But that evening... They find a very odd message from Archie on their answering machine. He left a message and says, your mama has run off with Richard. And we knew that Richard was a friend of Jackie and they had had a friendly relationship, but it just didn't make, it didn't make much sense. Still, for Melissa and Todd, this isn't enough to make them worry about their independent mother. But time passes and Jackie doesn't reappear. She never came back home. She never answered her phone. And it was that way all night long. Archie spends a long, sleepless night waiting at Jackie's house. In the morning, he calls her daughter Lisa and then Jackie's office. He's starting to fear the worst. But I knew by Friday morning when I called work and I said, have you, you guys heard from Jackie? No, we haven't heard from her. It's at this point that Archie calls the Nassau County Sheriff's Office and reports her missing. About the same time, one of Jackie's colleagues alerts Jackie's daughter, Melissa, in Central Florida. I receive a phone call from one of her colleagues at work that said that she didn't show up for work. This news fills Melissa with dread. It just hit my heart. I was terrified because she never missed a day of work in her life, and I knew something was wrong. For her to not be able to be reached on a cell phone and to not show up for work was completely out of character for her. We knew instantly that that was a big problem. Todd and Melissa's brother Scott jump on a plane to Jacksonville. Melissa and her sister Lisa follow in a car. What they find at Jackie's home will be even more unnerving. On Friday morning, December 15th, 2000, Jackie Markham's car is in her garage, but the 51-year-old woman is nowhere to be found, not at home and not at work. This is very out of character for the workaholic manager of a trucking firm. 
a boyfriend, Archie Carroll, reports her missing. He had reported the possibility that she had gone off with somebody and had been out that night. He waited for her to come back, and uh, she didn't come back. Her anguished children, who live in Central Florida, raced toward Jackie's home. You know, I just knew. And immediately, immediately, I, I, I didn't think I'd ever see her again. Investigators are already there when Jackie's son-in-law, Todd, arrives with her son, Scott. We went straight to her house, and the detectives were just starting to close the house up. Officials from the Nassau County Sheriff's Office have already declared the house a crime scene. They did allow us to go in and look around and not touch anything, but they wanted to see if we could see if anything was out of place. Todd and Scott walk hurriedly through the house before it is sealed off. There wasn't anything out of place. There was no signs of a struggle. Her car was in the garage. She had a Christmas tree. She had been decorating for Christmas and had it sitting out in the middle of the floor. You could tell that she was probably half done with the, putting the decorations on it. Looked like she had just walked out and gone to work. The only odd thing they notice is in the backyard. There were some tire tracks that led off to the woods. We weren't sure what that was from. Soon afterward, Jackie's daughters Melissa and Lisa arrive, too late to enter their mother's house. My sister and I didn't get to go in, and which would have been good if we did. From a woman's perspective, we may have seen something that could have alerted us. Her car was in the garage. Um, the prescriptions were on her front seat. The presence of Jackie's car and the bag of prescriptions on the front seat are intriguing to investigators. They wonder if someone was in the garage when she pulled in. There could have been a circumstance that somebody met her in the garage, started talking to her. She got out of it, got distracted, got out of the car, left the prescription there, and uh, went on inside the residence. But the trail ends there. Jackie's purse, her cell phone, and the clothes she wore to work that day are all missing. Despite the absence of any evidence of struggle, Jackie's family believes that something horrible has happened to their beloved mother. The police are inclined to agree with them. They suspected foul play fairly um, soon. But because of the relatively undisturbed appearance of Jackie's house, the detective in charge doesn't think anything violent happened there. Sheriff Seagraves, who was not sheriff at the time, explains. Not seeing any uh, thing that led him to believe that she was taken from the residence against her will uh, played a huge part in the processing of the scene. Uh, the scene wasn't processed. You know, it wasn't uh, fingerprinted like it should have been. The unprocessed house is nevertheless secured as a crime scene. Meanwhile, Jackie's stunned children launched their own search. We drove all over the area. We drove up and down the streets. We looked for construction sites that had dumpsters. We went and opened dumpsters. We stopped on the side of the road and saw garbage bags and opened them up just to see if she might be in there. That weekend, the next day, basically, we um, started to print out missing person flyers. And we went around and stuffed them in all the mailboxes in the entire neighborhood that she lived in. The family then gives investigators Jackie's cell phone and banking records. We were able to get a hold of her phone records by going online, and there was no 
no additional activity on the phone or credit cards. Detective Lieutenant Tommy Reeves, later assigned to the investigation, re-examines all the records and re-interviews everyone connected with Jackie's case. When she, uh, she left the office that day, she told the girls in the office that she, she wasn't feeling good, her back hurt her pretty bad, and that she had to go by Kmart and uh, pick up a few more items. Bank and cell phone records help fill in the details, including a phone call from a truck driver who worked for Jackie. At Kmart, one of her employees called and wanted to know what his runs would be for the following day. She told him, well, I'm not sure yet. I'll see you tomorrow morning at the office. At that point, it appears Jackie was intending to be at work the following day. The last call Jackie made was at around 6.31 p.m. Her boyfriend, Archie Carroll, told police that she called him to say she was running late and asked him to pick up her prescriptions at a drugstore. And he says, well, you know, it's only 6.31. Uh, they don't close till 7. You've got plenty of time to get there. It was Eckerd she picked it up at here in Callahan. The prescriptions were later found on the front seat of her car in a bag from Eckerd's. The receipt shows Jackie picked up the prescriptions at 6.51. Driving at normal speed, Reeves estimates she'd have gotten home a little after 7. It took her about 14 minutes to get home. But did she really get home? Her house was eventually processed more completely than it had been the first day. Evidence found there points to the likelihood that she did return. She went inside the house. We found her, her jewelry that she wore to work that day uh, in a little porcelain dish on the sink, on the drain board. But besides these few signs of recent activity, all traces of Jackie disappear. There was really never, from the beginning, no real evidence that they could run with to be able to move forward in a case um, against somebody or to have a suspect or something like that. Archie Carroll's account of Jackie's last phone call to him implicates a man named Richard. Archie says Jackie told him Richard had arrived drunk at her house that night. Investigators learned that Jackie did know a man by that name. She seemed to be, you know, pretty interested in him and um, talked to Todd and I about it. Jackie had also confided in her friend Nelda Lee. She told me that she had went out with Richard. And so I asked her if she'd be seeing him again, and she said yes, that she would like to see him again. Archie did not personally know Richard, but he did remember that on July 4th, Jackie told him she was spending the day with a girlfriend. Checking up on her, Archie discovered Jackie had gone somewhere else instead. On the 4th, she went to town, stating she was going over here, and I was going to town too, and well, she didn't go over there because I did. Archie later learned Jackie had gone to a barbecue at Richard's house that day. So I knew right then, this is not a happening relationship. <laughs> she really didn't know how um, to tell Archie that, um, you know, we're done. Investigators lose no time in interviewing Richard, but they find his alibi is solid. Two of his neighbors said, well, look, we know where Richard was that night. Uh, we, we were at his house having dinner with him. 
Other details make the story of Richard's supposed drunken appearance at Jackie's even less credible. He's probably in his late 60s or early 70s. Uh, he, he had had surgery on his eyes and he, he had problems. He couldn't drive at night. Richard agrees to come to the sheriff's office and take a voice stress analysis test. The voice stress analyzer is a test that determines, you know, if somebody's being truthful. The polygraph does it through a heart rate pulse, and the other does it through voice analysis. Richard passes the voice stress test. This result, coupled with his rock-solid alibi, eliminates him as a suspect. Investigators then wonder, could Archie have been lying about the phone call? The only way we know that is that Archie told us that she called him because she used her house phone and she called him supposedly at his house phone and uh, those calls aren't trapped by the telephone company so there was no record of that call actually that I could find. Archie's roommate at the time remembers seeing a call come in from Jackie's home. If Jackie did call, could Archie have misunderstood her? Or perhaps, faced with an intruder, she was being forced to make up a reason to prevent Archie from coming over. On another front, the mysterious tire tracks in Jackie's backyard have yet to be explained. Somebody could have come in from the woods. Right directly behind Jackie's house is a set of planted pine trees. And behind the pine trees is Bismarck Road. A car could have parked in there someplace and walked through those woods and been into Jackie's house in about two minutes. Jackie Markham, a 51-year-old mother of three and grandmother of two, goes missing from her Callahan, Florida home on December 14, 2000. It's been five days since she vanished with only her purse, cell phone, and the clothes on her back. I just knew immediately that um, it was foul play. Her three grown children were expecting her to visit for a family celebration. Full of anxiety, they launch an all-out search. We went to all of the restaurants and stores and everything that we could find um, in Callahan, basically. Talked to people, have you seen her? And put, you know, just tons of flyers around you know, asking for people to contact us if they had seen her. Police have quickly eliminated the initial suspect and now turn their attention to the man who implicated him, a boyfriend of Jackie's, Archie Carroll. You have to look at everything. People that work with her, people that associate with her, people that may have come into her life in the last few months. But does Archie have a motive? If so, what would it be? Jackie's friend Nelda Lee tells investigators Archie seemed more possessive than he's willing to admit. She describes some behavior she witnessed during a visit to Jackie a week before she disappeared. And he just came in like he owned the place and sat down beside her and just took over the conversation. He made some remarks that I thought wasn't appropriate about her bed and different things. I mean, he was very possessive of her. He really acted like he didn't even want me and her to go to lunch together. Jackie's daughter, Melissa, also says she observed Archie's possessiveness during the family's Thanksgiving get-together. 
there was just this intensity, you know, that he had with her. It was just very possessive. Followed her around the house, watched her every move. She'd go outside and he'd want to know where she's at. She couldn't go in one room and not be followed by him. I mean, that's the level of intensity that he had with her. But Archie denies that he was possessive, saying they just got together to keep each other company. There was really no discussion of really a big commitment. You know, I was her friend, I was her companion. He says that Jackie didn't like to be alone. She made the comment, I'm tired of being around over here by myself all the time. I said, well, sweetie, you can't have a casual relationship and somebody there all the time and, and with the same bundle. Still, after Jackie's disappearance, authorities believe some of Archie's activities seem designed to throw the investigation off. They learn from Richard Blanco, a neighbor of Jackie's and a patrolman, of an odd request of Archie's the morning Jackie went missing. Well, he just asked me if uh, I would come with him to search the house um, because Jackie was missing. By his own account, Archie had been in the house all night. Why would he invite someone else into the house now before police arrive? I thought, well, this has given me a terrible, uneasy feeling, one that's been growing all night. It's a panicky feeling. I went next door. I said, Richard, I told him what was going on. I said, if you wouldn't mind coming over and just having a look around, maybe he'd see something I didn't see. I said, have you called the sheriff's office? He said, yeah, they're on the way. And I said, well, let's let the sheriff's office come over here and handle that. And I knew better than to wander into a, a crime scene. Nelda also was perturbed by a phone call from Archie two days after Jackie disappeared. He asked me if I knew where Jackie was, and I told him no. And he said, well, she disappeared, but she was probably off in the Bahamas with a boyfriend that she did this all the time, just take off and not let nobody know where she was going, so he wasn't going to worry about her. I said, no, Jackie does not. I said, she does not go off and not let anybody know where she's going. Possessive or erratic behavior is not by itself indicative of guilt. To dispel mounting suspicion, Archie Carroll agrees to take the voice stress analysis test. When he doesn't pass, the initial investigator is convinced he's got his man. He asks Archie if he can search the trunk of his car. Archie says, sure. When they open the trunk, where's your rug out of your floor? I said, well, I take that thing in and out all the time. I said, Jackie and I took it out two or three times because always loading the cooler. Bang, slosh, water. Archie tells the investigator the trunk rug is at his hunt club, drying out after something was spilled on it. Well, naturally, they were inquisitive about that. And I was, have you ever had any blood in there? I said, well, if there's anything in there, it came from a turkey shoot when I won some meat or something. It's something off a pack from a store. There ain't nothing else. When Archie brings the rug in, there's nothing incriminating on it. Poor performance on a voice stress test is all investigators have on Archie Carroll. It's not even enough to cite him as a person of interest. In fact, many are skeptical that voice stress analyzers have merit. A voice stress analyzer hasn't been acceptable in the court proceedings, you know, to date. And when the investigator continues to treat Archie as a suspect, he retreats. He was very cooperative in the beginning, and uh, then eventually got a lawyer, and from there, you know, everything seemed to be coming from his lawyer. Then, with the investigation stuck in an apparent logjam, 
there's a startling discovery. Five days after Jackie's disappearance, her purse turns up. But where it's found just doesn't make sense. The purse was laying in a ditch right at 15th and Evergreen Avenue. It's got all the little items in it like a woman would carry her makeup and Jackie's identification. Evergreen Avenue is in a rough part of Jacksonville, far from Jackie's usual route. It was found down in a part of Jacksonville where the shipyards are and uh, the railway, of course, comes in. There's a lot of different industry business down in that area. It looked like it had been placed where it could be found. But who left it there and why? The purse is sent to the crime lab of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. But the only prints they find are those of the man who picked it up from the ditch. Nothing evidentiary came out of it that I know of. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's January of 2001. 51-year-old grandmother Jackie Markham has been missing from her home in Callahan, Florida for three weeks. While investigators trace her final movements, her shocked and grieving children launch a website to help locate her. We put together a website, and it was basically a plea of, here's what she looks like. If you saw her, 
any time around that time frame. Um, you know, uh, there would there'd be tips come in that somebody thought they saw her at a restaurant, but it wasn't her after looking at the website. So far, none of the tips has led anywhere. Then, in a promising break, Jackie's purse is found in a ditch in Jacksonville, 21 miles from her home. But forensic examination yields no new information. It wasn't someplace she would ever go, so I felt it was set up that somebody just took her purse and threw it out the window of a car or something. Then, just a few days into the new year, a shocking development. A Nassau County deputy finds the body of a woman in a ditch. One of our patrol officers was going through a wooded area early one morning, and here's a here's something laying in a ditch over here, and uh, it's it's got a carpet over it, and he calls uh, the officer and tells them that he's he's found a dead person. The dead person proves to be a prostitute named Katrina Benson. She has been beaten and stabbed 43 times. The person had beat her in the head with a club, and uh, most of the stab wounds happened to be around the neck area. Tracing Benson's last movements, Detective Reeves learns that while driving around Jacksonville, she had picked up a man shortly before her death. The man and the car are both missing. The Miami Police Department contacted our office and said they had impounded that car in Miami. It was impounded on a Winn-Dixie parking lot. Reeves learns the man driving the car has been arrested for shoplifting. He goes into the Winn-Dixie store and he's gonna steal some razor blades because he needs to clean himself up. When he left the store without paying for the stuff, two security officers and the store manager got him as when he went out the door. The shoplifter is eventually identified as Ross Lane Emerson, a man with an extensive criminal record. He'd been in prison all his life in Texas uh, for some other crimes. He was known as a serial rapist. They had him on about seven cases out there. The uh, courts gave him 65 years. Well, he served 15 or 20 years of that sentence and then they take a chance on him. They paroled him with a monitor on his leg. He cut the monitor off and absconded. Nassau County officials request that Ross Lane Emerson be extradited from Miami. I charged him with the murder of Katrina Benson. During interrogation, Emerson admits killing Katrina, helpfully drawing a map of the crime scene for investigators. He also describes an additional murder he has recently committed. To elicit more information about these cases, Reeves takes Emerson to the neighborhood where he'd been living in Jacksonville. We put him in the back of the car and drove him around Jacksonville. He pointed out uh, places that he lived. It's then that Detective Reeves realizes, with a jolt, that Emerson was living only blocks from where Jackie's purse was found. Emerson had been sleeping in a railroad car, which was about four or five blocks away. I did some checking to find out to make sure that Emerson was in Jacksonville at that time, and he was. Disturbingly, the day Jackie went missing, Emerson was working as a day laborer in Callahan, Jackie's hometown. And the name that he gave them at the time he signed up for the work 
was uh, Richard Hubbard. The name Richard Hubbard rings another bell. Could this be the Richard Jackie told Archie was at her house, drunk? I'm thinking, well, I wonder if Archie could have been saying Richard Hubbard. The name is pretty close, but according to Archie, that's not the case. No evidence places Emerson at Jackie's house. But there's one suggestive detail that piques Detective Reeves' curiosity. Multiple sources report seeing a mysterious truck at Jackie's late in the day on December 14th. You know, the day she turned up missing, I remember a dark color pickup truck being parked out front. But extensive investigation fails to track the truck down. And though Rosalyn Emerson admits to two of the killings he's accused of, he denies responsibility for Jackie's disappearance. Unconvinced, Detective Reeves cultivates a relationship with Emerson. He was very friendly to me. He was telling me uh, a little bit about his Buddhist religion. Went to Barnes & Noble and got him a couple of books on Buddhism. You know, my motive was to get him to tell me about anything else he might have done. While Emerson sits in jail, Jackie's family continues their exhaustive search effort. We made up over 10,000 flyers. We mailed them to every truck stop in Florida and Georgia. We handed them out, asked the truck drivers to put them out. But as the months pass with no sign of Jackie, measured hope turns to despair. It is a small consolation to the family that they are allowed in April of 2001 to go back into their beloved mother's home. We entered the house and we, and we spent the weekend there and um, it was very heart-wrenching. Imagine opening up a house that's been closed up for four months and see a half-decorated Christmas tree with cobwebs. Hard to explain. You can see the hair on my arm still standing up. Some details still raise questions in their minds. One of the things we found was her jewelry. Jewelry she would wear every day to work or just in her everyday life that we knew she would have on, which is sitting in this container on the counter in the kitchen, which she would have never done. So it was very odd to us. The rings, the Christmas ornaments, these details are mute, heartbreaking reminders of the mother and grandmother who has vanished from their lives. It's as if time stopped in the house on December 14th, 2000. This is the way she left it the day that she went to work. So it was, um, it was pretty difficult for us as a family. Jackie Markham, a mother, grandmother, and trucking company manager goes missing at the end of the year 2000. Six months later, a suspected serial killer named Ross Lane Emerson sits in jail in Nassau County, Florida. He's confessed to two murders and is suspected in Jackie's disappearance. He stalked females, followed them, which could be the same situation that could occur to Jackie. And uh, then he would attack. And uh, some of them were pretty violent. But Emerson denies any connection to Jackie and there's no evidence of his guilt. Detective Tommy Reeves continues to try to wear Emerson down about his activities on December 14th, 2000, 
the day Jackie went missing. I said, I know you worked up here that day. I asked him to go through, you know, what, what his movements were that day. But he can get nothing from Emerson until one day in September 2001, when he receives a surprising handwritten letter. Emerson begins the letter by thanking Reeves for his kindness. Then he makes a fervent declaration. He told me, he said, well, I, you know, I didn't do anything to her. I, I don't know who she is, I, you know, that kind of thing. Then three weeks later, Reeves gets a stunning phone call that will radically alter the investigation. The sheriff up here called me and said, well, there's one case you don't have to worry about anymore. And that's the Ross Lane Emerson case. I said, oh, did he plead out to something? And she said, no, he hung himself in the jail this morning. The sad thing is, is that he hung himself in the jail and took those stories with him. Because Emerson openly acknowledges other murders he is accused of, Reeves believes his letter is sincere and that he did not kill Jackie Markham. He'd been so forthcoming with everything else. After he killed himself, I said, well, you know, he didn't really have any, anything to lose by not telling me. And Jackie's family agrees. When someone with the experience of Detective Reeves says, I believe him, I don't second guess that. So we, we put that out of our mind. By December of 2001, the one-year anniversary of Jackie Markham's disappearance, no one has any more idea what might have happened to her than on the day she went missing. Years pass. Detective Tommy Reeves retires. And then eight years later, in 2009, after endless tips have been phoned in, followed up, and discarded, there's an apparent break in the case. We got a call that two gentlemen had been out turkey hunting and they had run across what they believed to be a skull. The news sends a collective shiver down the spines of Jackie's children. Basically, your heart just drops to your feet. It's pretty horrific to think that the remains that have been found could be my mom's. Her remains would be able to indicate to us what kind of crime occurred and how it occurred, and it would lead us to the next step to where we can find out who did it. The family is asked to provide dental records. Meanwhile, investigators again begin to wonder about Jackie's boyfriend, Archie Carroll. Archie is an avid hunter, though not a member of the hunt club where the bones were found. I feel Archie Carroll knows more than what he's told us. I think there's more information that he could tell us that would be helpful. Archie steadfastly maintains he had nothing to do with Jackie's disappearance, and he has not been charged with any crime. This boy ain't chipped out of that kind of stone. I ain't gonna go meet my maker with no bad rap hanging over my head. Mm-mm. <sighs> Ten days after the skeletal remains were found, dental records prove the bones are not, in fact, Jackie's. We were having hopes that this was gonna be something that we could be able to see where to go from that next point. But it just doesn't fit. It wasn't. Jackie Markham. We've obviously known at some point that day and time would come. But you're never ready for it. You're never ready for that phone call. As painful as that phone call would be, 
news that Jackie's body has been found is deeply hoped for by a number of people. Chief among them are her children. I want it to happen one day. I want to find her. I want to know. I want closure. There's no way that someone just vanishes off of the face of the earth. Somebody knows what happened. Even though he's retired, Tommy Reeves is still haunted by this case. It's been very frustrating. I have a lot of sympathy for the family. And uh, before I die, I'd like to see the case resolved. There are a lot of people that have been through a lot of misery because of this and still have open wounds. The next chapter is to find out what happened to her, find out where she is, what happened to her, and to get some justice. The day I wait for is the day that we can honor her memory and give her an appropriate burial. That's what she deserves.